0: Hi everyone, it's Morgan here. Thanks so much for tuning in while I've been on paternity leave. So we are going to pull one more show from the archives. This is a fantastic show. It's my good friend, sport psychologist, Dr. Greg Carton, talking about the science and the psychology of flow states. This is an amazing interview. I love it. It's one of my favorites. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And stay tuned for next week We're going to have a brand new show featuring an incredible report From someone who just got back from a Vipassana retreat And I can't wait to share that interview with you So until then, enjoy Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from AboutMeditation.com my name's Morgan Dix and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 2 of the One Mind podcast. I'm super excited about our show today, but before I introduce our guest, I want to ask you a favor. If you like our show, can you please head on over to iTunes after you listen and leave us a rating and a review? That'll help us reach a lot more people with this podcast. Okay, so today we interview Dr. Greg Carton. Greg is a sports psychology consultant who does some fascinating work coaching professional athletes in the art Of mindfulness to help them improve their performance. I think you're going to love the show. I met Greg a long time ago, actually. We went to summer camp together almost 35 years ago when we were just little tykes. We were five years old. But then Greg reached out to me about a year ago, and we've stayed in touch ever since. And I'm really happy we did because I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We talk about flow states the nature of present moment awareness. And in a lot of ways, I feel like Greg really demystifies a lot of the ideas around flow, mindfulness, and meditation. And he really makes it very accessible. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. So enjoy the show and let's jump in. So Greg, welcome. It's great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Morgan. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Awesome. So I'm excited to get into some questions about mindfulness in particular and how you integrate that into your work with professional athletes. But before we jump in, can you just tell everyone like tell everyone a little bit about your story and sure. a little bit about your profession and what you do?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm a sports psychology consultant. I do performance enhancement. I work with athletes Not only athletes, anybody who's looking to enhance their performance, artists, musicians, Mm -hmm. actors even, Mm -hmm. all sort of benefit from the type of work. Uh, I got my graduate degree in counseling psychology, so that's where a lot of my work is based, in counseling, and was turned on to mindfulness work as it relates to performance enhancement through my advisor at school who had gotten... Uh, heavily involved uh just on her own for her own well being mm-hmm. and uh found it to be not only interesting and beneficial for myself but really a lot of applications to the performance enhancement world It's been a big shift in 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 our field actually there's been a lot more interest in mindfulness and meditation and how it applies and how it can help
0: so you have a a great quote on your website that I'd like to read when I read it, I thought, all right, this is a great description of mindfulness without actually using the term mindfulness, and and I'd like to read that. Sure. So you, you say, by not constantly fighting the negativity, we're able to free up our minds to focus on the task at hand. Through this process, we're able to increase our chances of achieving optimal performance. This is the true benefit to my clients, the ability to perform at your best while experiencing normal human thought so i i love that quote especially thank you yeah the the last line the ability to perform at your best while experiencing normal human thought because i think so often people think to really perform at another level by default you have to switch into some like uber state of right. like right. High, high, you know higher awareness and, and you know although there may be some truth to that it's a subtle thing and and so i'd like to just launch from that quote into just a little yeah. bit. And you spoke to this a little bit in your, your intro. How did you get into mindfulness? At what point did that enter into your coaching practice? Did you know, for example, when you finished your doctoral program that that was the direction you were going to go in? And so, yeah, a little bit more about the catalyst. Sure. Yeah.
1: I got into mindfulness late in my doctoral studies, right? As I was finishing up actually my dissertation, which had nothing to do really with mindfulness or performance enhancement at all, mm-hmm. but as I said before, my advisor at school who i've 'm very close with was doing a lot of work in mindfulness on her own and then was implementing some of it into her practice and was we had got to talking about it and She gave a presentation at our conference on a book called the Mindfulness Acceptance Commitment theory mm-hmm. um,
0: what is what is that?
1: It's a theory developed by two sports psychologists who, who were steeped in traditional sports psychology, mental skills training, thought control, and, and really uh, revolutionized the field. If you want uh, to revolutionize, uh, maybe tough—not the right word—but but went their own way in introducing this type of thinking that you can perform regardless of the thoughts that you have mm-hmm. and that if we can stop the controlling and stop the fighting uh, that's when real performance enhancement c- can begin and, and that the the distress doesn't come from the thoughts that we're having it comes from our fight it comes from our attempts at blocking thought or controlling thought and in reality we don't we can't do that right you can't control the thoughts you have but so now we work alongside those thoughts we accept Move forward without them entering into our performance. That's when 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 the real work can can begin. And I, I thought that that was that that book was probably my that, that's what changed my mind on this type of practice, this type of work. Uh, I developed my own personal mindfulness practice, my meditation practice, mm-hmm. and because of that. And I also this this is what I do for work with my clients as well,
0: right. I, I have a question. So when you were introduced to this, uh, or when you were describing this shift, yeah. Um, so previously in the field, you, you mentioned thought control. So what was part of the convention then in, in coaching, in working with high performing individuals, was it really for people, so it was really almost like the opposite. The idea was to actually control your thoughts and to try and like suppress them, or, or if you can draw out the, the, par- yeah. the, the contradiction there a little more.
1: It's a good question. I think more of traditional performance enhancement work is steeped in this uh, mental skills training, whether it's goal setting or visualization, mm-hmm. self-talk. And to me, all that says is that we're attempting to control the way we think. Right. Now, don't get me wrong. These have been successful techniques, and there's people very skilled at delivering this type of work. To me, though, that's just covering up a lot of the issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the mindfulness work, the acceptance piece, that's more long-term. And to me, that's really getting at the root of some of the issues we, we struggle with in performance, fear, anxiety, all stuff we experience in real life. Right. So this is a shift in that respect, that no longer are we controlling or, or but we're letting everything in wow even more to athletes that was a big relief mm. you know that oh, i don't have to do that anymore i can just learn to get a better understanding of the thoughts that i have and what they mean and that they don't need to affect me physically
0: yeah i i can imagine that was a relief because that would be a relief because in a certain way if you know there's certain thoughts or patterns of thoughts that are disruptive for you naturally i think the position you would take was like well, I hope those don't cut. Co- You'd have an aversion to them, and I, I could see that dis- yeah. distracting you and throwing you off your game. Versus, if your fundamental position, as you've been describing it, is one of acceptance or, in a certain way, transcending them through accepting them, not fighting against them. Right. That's a completely different ballgame. game. I I can appreciate the uh, the dramatic nature in the shift there that you're describing.
1: Yeah, it's it's a big shift, and and you know I break it down with clients when I introduce it at times and you, you go through the simple exercise of asking someone to not think about the color green. Mm-hmm. And what's your first thing you do is you picture something green and then you wrestle with it. How do I get rid of this? Oh my God, it's coming back. What am I doing? And before you know it, you've created this battle and you've completely lost focus on what you're supposed to be doing. Right. And that's about as simple as it gets but it, it, it sends a big, I think, a pretty powerful message. And yeah. the biggest response I get immediately is, "Oh, what a relief! That's great. Right. All right, now let's get to work."
0: That's that's super interesting. I have a slightly different question, which is, and then I want to come back to uh, some of this. Sure. Do you did you have any history yourself of practicing meditation or mindfulness at all before you got into it in a professional context?
1: very informally, I've taken yoga for quite a few years mm-hmm. and was at the mercy of my instructors as far as how involved we got into the meditation piece. But that was really my only introduction into uh, mindfulness or meditation. But I, I, the benefits were clear in that setting, Right, getting into our breath, into our thoughts, but never, never a formal meditation practice prior to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what Kind of challenges or issues do athletes come to you with? What what are the problems that you solve?
1: Yeah, there the common problems include
0: And and not you know, just athletes, sorry. Like, yeah, like no, no, say, no, that's okay. No, or okay. Whoever. My,
1: the bulk of my work is with athletes. But yeah, any type of performance anxiety usually stems from some sort of fear about what's going to happen next, or if we're not prepared for what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. attention. Is the worst, especially with sports like golf, which is a majority of my clients.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Tension is no good when it comes to hitting a golf ball. Right. And, and that usually stems from fear. And again, this is why mindfulness was so powerful in that, you know, one of the oldest cliches in, in golf or any sport really is staying in the moment, you know, one shot at a time. Sounds great, but how do you actually do that?
0: Right.
1: Is next. And the idea that if you can stay in that moment, you know, fear and anxiety don't exist in the current present moment, and you can start to get chip away at that a little bit. But so using that as the hook, the idea that hey, this is going to help you stay focused on what you're doing right now, and that's mm-hmm. all that matters, mm-hmm. was very you know was key as well. Because again, like I said in the question you asked, the most common issues are are of fear and anxiety, right? Totally not performing to where. We want to be, or where we think we should be.
0: So, how how do you coach them? And and can you tell everyone, for example, what specific what are some of the specific mindfulness practices you share with them?
1: Yeah, I I sort of pride myself on providing each client with a really individual experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I take on less clients and spend more time with them. I get to know them on a personal level and. For me, that's really important, building that trust before any of this work takes place. And then I get a sense of, through their personality, what may work best. I found that the mindfulness acceptance commitment theory that I mentioned before, Mm -hmm. as it applies to sport and performance enhancement, usually is the most accepting of the athletes because it applies so much to what they're doing. But again, my, my own personal mindfulness practice and meditation practice is always evolving and I'm always learning And I, as I think everyone is who studies this. And I feel like there's, there's something new every day that I'm able to bring to the table because of this. And it, it all comes back to the athlete's personality, their individual personality. I wouldn't want to stick with one idea and sort of force that on everyone thinking it's going to work. It's yeah. really about getting to know them as a person before we can we get really into the work.
0: That's helpful. So maybe can you take us then into an example of what you're saying is like, maybe there's some general principles here and templates, but each one is a specific.
1: Yeah, it's response. very difficult to sort of quantify Yeah, one typical session. I, I do a lot of guided meditation work with the clients that has nothing to do with sport. And then maybe we'll apply some of the mindfulness activities to, to a sport specific activity so they can make that connection Mm -hmm. so they can see, Oh, I I get it. This is why I'm doing this. This is what happens when I do this. And that I feel like is is most important, but yeah, I think it's really tough. A lot of, you know, the best work that I feel like gets done with clients is when I'm with them in person. Yeah. Um, and spend time with them in their environment, whether it's at golf tournaments or wherever, just seeing how they behave, getting a sense of what gets to them. But a lot of the sort of the actual mindfulness work takes place on the phone, Skype coaching that way as well, suggesting things to read, stuff like that. But it, it again, it's relatively new still in, in, in the performance enhancement world, but it's taken off quite a bit.
0: Yeah, I bet. So I imagine like since you started your practice, there must have been a as you said your practice is always evolving and your responses, I'm sure, are also likewise always evolving. Can you say a little bit about since you started, how have you seen your responses to the work evolve in in terms of the refinement of your own observations and your own insights and your own relationship to the work? How have you seen that change?
1: You know, I I sort of use myself almost as, as the guinea pig lack of a better term through doing research and reading wow this was really going to apply mm-hmm. to the work i do with my clients i just recently stumbled onto a a meditation instructor who's also now a counselor named jason siff are you familiar with him
0: i, I don't know him
1: who who he practices uh something called recollective awareness meditation hmm. and the idea being you know, he just wrote a book called thoughts are not the enemy nice Wow! how much does this apply to what we're doing now So I read that book and followed some of his teachings and thought, I'm going to give this a go and added this to my own personal practice and then introduced some of these ideas to my clients. And once you get to a certain level, I think where they've found some success and feeling good about what they're doing, it's very easy to introduce new ideas. Right. Again, use the language you need to be careful. It can be intimidating for some, but... I really do believe that at the heart of this work are those trusting relationships right. once it's developed, uh, that introducing these new ideas is much easier.
0: That totally makes sense. I, so I was thinking more about exactly that the, the nature of the trust relationship and the fact that it really, the work so much is a relationship. You're helping them through well, a supportive dynamic and relationship. Sure. So I imagine like, Well, one, I I wanted to ask you a little bit what kind of results you see, but also it it seems to me like it must be very natural. Like you're, you must be guiding people towards those aha moments where they start to see, okay, I'm doing this practice with Greg. I'm doing some of these guided meditations and then they're up on the T or then they're, they're in their game and they go, boom, I see it. I kind of, they make the connection. Yes, exactly. And I could see that would really be the foundation of that trust relate. When something like that happens, I'm sure it's then like something drops between you guys.
1: Yeah. Whenever they can apply what we do in our work in the competitive environment, because you can't recreate that environment unless you're playing. Right. So there's no way to practice it under those circumstances. So when that does happen, right. And they're very subtle changes. We're not talking about, oh man, now it's. It's all, you know, I got it all figured out. It's very subtle. Right. My goal with all my clients is for them to be able to, would be for them to call after a round or say, hey, I was able to accept and tolerate many of the thoughts that I had out there. And I had it and I really enjoyed myself basically because with the enjoyment and with the ability to immerse yourself in each moment and what you're doing you remove the result Mm -hmm. and the result is what causes the tension when we focus on that. So if we can remove the, the the focus on the result through this type of work, that to me, regardless of what they shoot or what what their score is, that's what's most important.
0: All right. So that's really interesting to me. And I want to come back to this because I want to ask you a question a little bit later about flow states and the way you were just describing the goal independent of the result. I'm going to read a quote from Shiksant Mihai a little bit yes. later, which I think totally underscores your point in a very powerful way, but yeah. let's, let's come back to that a little okay. bit later. And can you take us like a little bit into the minutiae? Like, for example, you're a golfer, you know, you're working with a golfer. What, what are they going through in their heads and how you work with them so that when they're standing there about to hit the ball? How are they exercising the mindfulness tools that you teach them? Yeah. And then a related question, and you can answer these together however you want. But, like, so personally, I'm getting more and more into routines. Okay, And Great. I'm studying habits a lot more. They help me become a better writer, researcher, communicator, and basically a happier and, and more fulfilled person. So I'd also be interested in relationship to the question i just asked how do routines play into the way that you work with people do you yeah. do you give them routines or do you co-create routines with them
1: yeah let me i'll maybe we'll touch on that one first because golf is uh, a routine is extremely important in golf so that you can cr- somehow th- this is the only Way that the golfer, the athlete, are able to control as much as possible their environment. In golf, mm. it's, it's the pre-shot routine. It's sort of a common term. Uh, what, what do you? How do you? What do you do prior to each shot to get yourself ready to hit that shot? Right. And, and it's really the only way. And we don't again try to stay away from the word control, but it's a way to create an environment that's that's similar each time. With the goal being that no shot is more or less important than the next. Right. To me, that's the goal of a of a of a proper pre shot routine. So what I'll do so often is observe pre shot routines, make some notes. But if if that doesn't happen organically and it becomes work, now we're adding too much thought to that process. It, that's not a routine to me. Th- th- this is something that has to to develop organically. Right. So that comes from strictly from observation, but it's a very important piece to, to golfers work. It's their only attempt at making some sort of sense of that environment. And now golf's so interesting as well because it's the only sport where you really have tons of time to think. Right. Where you're alone. The actual physical activity is is such a small percentage of the time you spend in competition, unlike any other sport. And the golf ball doesn't move, so you initiate the action. And there's very few of any sports like that. So now, how do we, you know, make more sense of that time period? Yeah. How do we get a better understanding of when we're all alone with our thoughts? You know, totally. How, how do we? Again, I always stay away from the word control, but make make better sense of, of that. So we now know that. You know the time spent in between shots is just that—it's it, thought, naturally occurring thought, coming and going, without our feeling of having to latch on to any of that, or change that, or control that. So that when it's time to initiate a physical action, mm-hmm. it's unencumbered, it's free. And I use the word free and light a lot with, with golf swings. Yeah, if you can make a free tension or tension-free swing. That's all you can do. Golf's a hard game. The result, you're not always going to hit good shots. But you can put yourself in a better position to do that by making free golf swings, tension-free golf swings. Mm-hmm. And if we can separate that from our thinking, bang, there's another aha moment. Oh, okay. If I step up to the tee and I see trouble down the left and trouble down the right, and that's the last thought in my head, it doesn't mean I'm going to hit it there. No. No. Not if you have an understanding of what that means, really. Mm-hmm. But good good point about the routines, because that that's really important. Again, as long as it's not work and there's not extra thinking involved, right? those can be very powerful.
0: It's such a good metaphor, what you just described, for, the, well, really any activity in a, in a certain way, but just life. I mean, it's very powerful, because I had never thought about that before. Of course, with golf, you're just... It's such a head game, man. You're, yeah, you're, it is. Because usually, in most professional athletic contexts, you just have stimulus that you're responding to all the time, all the uh, external stimulus, right? Exactly. And so, you, you know, mind frame is important, but at the same time, managing through your response and also responding faster than thought, you know, where you're just, you know, there's a certain level of pre conscious conditioning that's going on that's very important. So how you bring that into golf where there's a lot of room to go into, like, rumination, you know, getting lost in thought or worrying about certain things and then deriving or making certain conclusions about that, right? which is exactly the opposite of what you just described, that moment when you're, you're up there and maybe you've even had a lot of thoughts that previously would have been problematic, like, uh-oh.
1: Yeah, but, and usually that's what we do think about. Right. Somehow, some reason we're geared... Rarely do we sit around with time to think it, and all this positive thinking—it's usually right, negative, right? That's, it's just sort of the way it works. That's
0: exactly right. It's probably evolutionary.
1: You're right. It, it's to, but you know, preparing for the worst. I, I don't know what it is. That helped
0: but, us survive, I bet.
1: Yes, I, I think somewhere along the line that was right. That was helpful. Yeah, it's that. the fight or flight. Yeah. Experience. How do we? How do we unlearn that? I think mindfulness and in, in, in meditation practices that get get right at that.
0: That's awesome, so circling back to this chick sent me high quote, yes, he wrote that, I think in like nineteen ninety that it was flow. yeah, the book flow yes, and there's a new there seems to be some resurgence of interest in it. There's a book out, I think it was published last year, the Rise of Superman, yeah, all about athletes tapping into these flow states. So I'm gonna go ahead and read this quote from Mihai Shiksen Mihai, who in nineteen ninety is the one who really popularized this idea. I don't think it's it was an original idea really, but he he did a lot of the research yeah. and the articulation that put it on the map scientifically. So the the quote goes According to Mihai Shiksen flow is completely focused motivation. It is a single-minded immersion and represents perhaps the ultimate experience in harnessing the emotions in the service of performing and learning. In flow, the emotions are not just contained and channeled, but positive, energized, and aligned with the task at hand. The hallmark of flow is a feeling of spontaneous joy, even rapture, while performing a task. Although, Flow is also described as a deep focus on nothing but the activity, not even oneself or one's emotions. So something you said reminded me in particular the end of that quote, which was you said something about really the goal is just to make that swing, to make a relaxed light swing in the moment. And it's no different than any other swing. Right, and so there's something I think contained in that, and also paralleling with what Mihai sure. is, is pointing to. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts about flow, and, and is that something you work with? Very, or, yes, yeah.
1: very much so. In fact, I read Flow as a grad student and thought, here it is this this is the the key. Right, and it's become popularized in an attempt to capture that experience. How do we capture that? I break it down to my athletes, and this is something we talked about a lot in school, the idea that when skill and challenge meet, mm-hmm. this is where we can start to enter this experience. If skill it far exceeds the challenge, we get bored and lose focus. If the challenge far exceeds our skill level, we become anxious and worried that we're not prepared or we're not, we start to get, you know, a little bit afraid of what may happen. It's the meeting of these two. And that's how I break this idea down to, to athletes, where nothing else at the moment matters other than the activity that you're doing. And can you get fully immersed in that activity without being pulled by this? Feeling of needing to accomplish a certain result. And, and Chiksomehi's book highlights that with a lot of examples of these people who do these very mundane, ordinary tasks who find ultimate enjoyment and excitement in them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and this, I did read, this is it The Rise of Superman?
0: Right.
1: It's interesting, it takes it to the next level. So, where Chiksomehi was interviewing basically random folks who were doing these ordinary tasks this takes it to the next level. Now, when we're faced with death, as these adventure athletes are, or X Games athletes, that's a way to maybe facilitate that flow experience as well. When the only option is, if we fail, that death is a possibility. That can really stimulate this flow experience. Now, you can't apply that anywhere else. Golfers aren't worried about their lives when they're competing. So how do you (laughs) That, that was the message I got from the book, and, and the book was really good, I thought, but not very transferable maybe in, in other areas. But I, I believe that Csikszentmihalyi originally set out to, to find sort of the meaning of happiness. Or how do we find happiness?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it is. It's through these experiences where we can completely lose ourselves in the moment, where time slips away. Right. And I talked to golfers after fantastic rounds, like, oh, man, I didn't even know. One, I didn't know what my score was, and two, everything just sort of slowed down a little bit. Mm. There was no sense of time. But there's so many applications to sport, or that zone people talk about. Yeah, you know, getting into that zone where athletes perform these amazing feats and don't remember really right the thought process. Time slows down. So yeah, I, think, I don't know if that
0: totally
1: if was a question or an answer. To that, but uh, a lot of the, the work I do is very much comes from his work, Chikszentmihalyi.
0: Yeah, I find the whole thing incredibly fascinating because there are, there are these deep parallels to meditation. So for example, when I write about meditation or, or teach, I'll say, look, one sign of deep meditation is you just, you forget about time. And I, right. I know from my own experience, having meditated for very long periods of time just ex- extended hours on end. And I think probably the longest I've ever sat was like four hours, but it was, it was in the middle of the night and it was as if the time didn't even exist. It was like, I sat down at midnight and then it was 4am and it just was gone. The time was gone. Yep. And it was an extraordinary experience because I thought, okay, maybe it feels like a long time, maybe two hours went by, but the fact that four hours went by it, a lot of philosophers and, and thinkers just refer to that. It's a higher state of consciousness. Yeah. But yeah, I find, I find the parallels obviously interesting in terms of flow. And now that this is something obviously that in traditional religious or spiritual context, people have been aware of these things. And, and now since me uh, Mihai published that book, you start to see the ideas really infiltrating the mainstream, especially in the context of performance And I, yeah, so I'm always interested in the parallels and I would be interested also like you and I both played sports growing up Mm -hmm. and I, for me, I really feel like as an athlete, lacrosse is where I kind of realized my potential and it was in lacrosse that I had the real experience of flow where it became almost like a dance. Right. And. I wanted to ask you, because I know you were also a really serious athlete or a serious athlete growing up. You played lacrosse and, and soccer, was it? Yeah, correct. So, and so I wanted to know, how do, see, how do you see that as an influence? Did you have those experiences? And um, how does that influence how you think about this, how you coach? You know, the, and do you see those as seeds of your own work? Obviously, they were.
1: Yeah, it definitely started me along the path of this type of work, always been involved or interested in athletics, but not only athletics from my own perspective, but, but athletes who could perform at these high levels Mm -hmm. under trying circumstances or when it mattered the most. And that, that always fascinated me. I have very clear memories and not many as most, as I don't think athletes do, but clear memories of experiences of whether it was scoring a, a goal or making some sort of pass, just like we're talking about, where time just sort of slowed down. And after it was done, maybe saw it on video, I'm like, wow, I don't even remember really doing that. Mm -hmm. Like it just sort of happened. And I thought, wow, how do do you build on that? So that definitely got me excited about those ideas. And it wasn't, though, really until I got into playing golf and competing in golf where Mm -hmm. I realized, now this is the ultimate test, where time really is going by slowly. Right. And now we have all this time. What do we do with
0: it? Right. It's just you and you.
1: Right. Right. So, how do we not, how do we get out of our own way? Because that's as athletes usually, or in any endeavor, we struggle the most when we get in our own way, when we don't let our natural abilities emerge due to our thinking. And, and that's been the, the, the constant battle trying to get at the heart of that, that. That really got me involved or excited about this type of work. How do we step out of our own way? It's the simple way to put it so that our natural abilities can come out. And then when that does happen, the result doesn't matter. This gets back to this flow Mm -hmm. that we can have this experience and feel good about letting or performing at a high level to the point where the result now doesn't matter. We've done all we can. And we've immersed ourselves in that moment. and, And that's it. That's the bottom line for me, really, I think.
0: It's almost like you must have to deprogram people when you're working with them in terms of focusing on shifting the goal, shifting the end.
1: Yeah, it it is. It's almost the deprogramming comes from just allowing ourselves to be how we're supposed to be, just letting natural thought occur. Use the example of children. I do their moods are constantly changing because they let them. Mm-hmm. They don't do anything. They're not trying to control their thoughts. child could be upset about one thing, and then five minutes later, it's as if it didn't even happen. How great would that be if we could replicate that? Somewhere along the line, we're taught, or we learn, right, maybe it's through evolution or what, that we need to respond to the thoughts that we have. And right. The, the, the unlearning is, is that, or the reprogramming is just getting back to probably what we were supposed to be like. Sounds funny or strange.
0: No, no, it makes, I think it makes sense.
1: But that's, that's where that comes from.
0: You've spoken a little bit already to this question, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there anyways, and just see if, see what comes out of it. What are some of your your primary influences in the work you do. So historically, obviously, you spoke about your advisor and, and also the, that, that conference, that moment where you, yeah. you kind of saw that opportunity. But speak to us a little bit about, even over the last couple of years, what have been some primary influences on you?
1: Sure. I mean, going back farther than that quickly is, is some of the coaches I had, uh, even as far back as high school, who really made an impression on me as far as helping me get the most out of my whatever ability I brought to the table and not repeating that. And that spoke a lot to me, how it would be great to be able to help other people in this way. They just did it. That's just who they were. Right. Study that or they didn't practice that. It's just who they were. But then again, yeah, definitely uh, through school, my, my advisor was extremely influential in her ability to communicate with people, to get them to gain a better understanding of how they thought. And, and then authors, like we just talked about, Shikszentmihalyi's work was very influential. Gardner and Moore, these two uh, most recent sports psychologists who wrote this book on mindfulness yeah. and, and performance enhancement, have been very Influential and in a lot of stuff I do. And not a lot of these meditation teachers now too. I work with a meditation teacher who uh, we talk about, you know, all kinds of ideas. That Jason Siff, who I mentioned before, <laughs> some of his books recently. I've I've read both of them. Um, very interesting. And in fact, going on retreat that he's leading later in the summer, which will be, I think, eye opening and interesting for sure. But again, it, that works are constantly evolving. Like these things just keep. You know they keep coming up, and uh, I think the key is being open-minded, not pigeonholing yourself into one modality because there's so much rich information out there,
0: like never before.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and in ways to get it too.
0: And J- um, Jason Siff, he was the one who was thought he was thoughts are not the enemy.
1: Yeah, his first book was called Unlearning Meditation. I think again, as with the mindfulness work in sports psychology. I think some of his stuff was a little bit against the curve in an allowing thought instead of focusing in other areas during practice. Very uh, interesting techniques to, to add to your practice, I, I thought.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sure. Just to jump back a little bit to one of the things you said, I I often think about when you described having some of those early coaches in high school. So this was at Loomis, right? Yeah. So similarly in boarding school, I I was fortunate to have certain both coaches and teachers Mm -hmm. who I can feel the indelible nature of their impact on me. There's just no question that there's something about that age that a really strong figure, they can imprint something on your mind that just lasts. And I know, I feel I was very fortunate to have a, well, definitely in sports, but also just in a certain way, life lessons, some, some older men who just drew a line in the sand with me and said, you know, you have to do it this way. Or they just asked certain questions that they've never stopped resonating for me. They've been questions that they've just sat with me my whole life. And I think that's amazing. And I I heard that. I heard that in what you were saying.
1: Yeah, I had exactly a very similar situation. And again, it wasn't just sport. It it, it was life lessons or teaching. Yeah. I, I got a lot out of their ability to connect with people in, on an individual level, as opposed to teaching one specific method to everybody. Right. Their ability to understand what was what really stuck out to me as being powerful and in the backbone to all this work. You there?
0: Yeah. I'm just... That's oh, sorry? Yeah, no. Okay. I'm just... <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking about some of those early influences. Yeah. I, I, it really, I'm thinking one, one in particular I had, I don't know if this is going to go in the podcast, but I had one guy, Todd Jesdale, and he, I was just a little punk and yeah. I'll never forget him pulling me out of study hall one night. It was like 8 PM. We'd live there. So he pulls us, out, he pulls me out of my little cubby. I have no idea what's coming. He takes me downstairs and he looks me in the eye and he's just like, what do you think you're doing? And he just starts shaking me. He's like, grabs my shoulders yeah. and he's shaking me. It's like, who do you think you are? And as a kid, you just, you're oblivious to the impact you're having on the world around you. You're just, yeah. you're just, you know, the world revolves around you and I'm so grateful That there were people who just drew such a hard line and they kind of slapped you across the face and said, you can't do that. Right. And it was, it so transcended the moment, you know, that, like you said, that was a life lesson. It would just lasted forever. And I think it goes deeply into your character, those moments and shape who you become.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting point you made about drawing that line. Have you seen the movie whiplash?
0: No, I've been waiting for it to come out on Amazon, but I'm dying we're to see it.
1: Very good representation of the mentor, the teacher, between the the line of sort of challenging and, and nurturing, mm-hmm. I think, is sort of what you were getting at a little bit. Yeah, definitely. It comes out a lot in that movie. Maybe controversial, some of the techniques, but because th- that mentor had a good understanding of what his student could take or right. what it's made of right made all the difference in the world
0: i'm dying to see that so many people have talked about it and also just the musical score that i heard is yeah. amazing there's a lot of good stuff i had again This is kind of still diverging but I, I remember another teacher who i saw recently it had been about tw- at my 20th Reunion 20-year reunion, this was about three years ago, I think. I hadn't seen him for over 20 years and got a chance to see him and thank him because he was another one of these guys who left his... his, In in this man, it was just his presence. It was Mm -hmm. his presence and also his like... It was something about the quality of his attention where he was able to, through asking questions, he was so empowering and that he always answered my questions with other questions in a way that, that wasn't paternal. It wasn't patronizing. It was really interested. I he was really listening to me in a way that no one had ever listened to me before. And then when I went back and thanked him like 20 years later, I just wanted to tell him, I was like, look, I don't, I just want to tell you, you had such a huge impact on me. And yeah. He, and he would describe how he would relate to a classroom. And he said, Mostly, mostly, what this guy does now is he spends six months of the year camping and canoeing and fly fishing. And right. he's just like, I would watch the class, like I would watch the ripples when I'm fly fishing. If I see a reed kind of twitch over there, or if I see a ripple in the water over there, I'm, it suggests to me that maybe there's there's something there, and I'll drop my fly. He's like, this is, it was the same thing in the classroom. He was like, I'd watch. All of you guys. And it was just the expressions on your face, just a turn of the head. He was just like, I was just always watching for interest in those aha moments. And that's what you could tell. It's what he lived to forge in his students.
1: You learn a lot by observing. Yeah. I find more and more that that's that's really powerful stuff.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it sounds like a lot of your work is that.
1: It it, it really is. And and it's hard because a lot of athletes sometimes want this quick fix. And they say, well, especially when you're being compensated for the work you're doing, they want to see some tangible result. Very clear up front. It's going to take a little time. Mm -hmm. But I can guarantee you with some certainty that things are going to change. Uh, if you let them. So, but it is, sometimes it can be tough in that respect.
0: Yeah, no, I imagine. So you've mentioned a, uh, a few books, we're kind of getting toward wrapping it up here. Maybe if you could just recap what's inspired you lately, like books, movies, you've mentioned a couple of things. Also, what's your routine? What's your morning routine? How do you get ready for the day? you know, how do you prepare yourself for this work?
1: The routine piece is, <laughs> is interesting. With three small kids, yeah, uh, it's, it's quite different every morning.
0: They're the the wake-up
1: time is always the same. If, if I were a little more, I don't want to say determined, but uh, on top of things, I would probably get up about an hour earlier than mm-hmm. my son, who's up at five already.
0: So, oh, my gosh.
1: But I'm not ready to make that jump yet. So mornings consist of, you know, once we get them ready and out the door, and again, I'm in between offices, you know, working out and practicing my own, you know, meditation uh, is really the only way I can begin the day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then some reading. And, and that's really, if I can develop any kind of consistency, it begins with that for sure. It provides me with the clarity I need to, for, for the day for sure. But again, it's, it's tough to, to stay with those routines. And, and like you'd mentioned before, routines are really important in our making sense of our reality as much as we can that's something i need to improve on upon more than anything i think is getting more consistent with that mm-hmm. as far as books are concerned i, that's I used to just
0: one thing I mean, that's got to yeah. be I, I i know you said but you know, everyone before Greg and I got in a call, we were talking about this and he said he didn't want to use the kids as an excuse <laughs> right. anymore. That's but,
1: the one thing I still use as an excuse uh, for. to
0: me. I think fair enough. Cause I, I don't have kids and like my routine is sacred for me. I, I right. that first hour of the day I'm up 15 minutes. I get my cup of coffee and I'm on the cushion med- yeah. meditating within 15 minutes of getting out of bed. Right. And then similar to you. And then I do some affirmations, some review my goals. And then I, read, and then go to the gym. But those things together, I think without it, I just feel like I'm not myself, really.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, I could solve a lot of problems getting up a t- tiny bit earlier. Once they're up, you know, you
0: lose. Game con-
1: on. Yeah. It, it's really, you know, you learn that it's not about you anymore. Yeah. I'm um, well,
0: lucky I don't, I can do that because I don't have kids.
1: Yeah. But again, like there's ways around that that I haven't explored yet. Yeah. So. yeah. I put that on on myself, but it is it is important to get some of those staples done
0: early. There's a book that got me going on this called My Morning Miracle by Hal Elrod. The first couple chapters, you know, are maybe a little light, but the basic idea at the center of it is very inspiring, and it's it's all about how you shape that morning routine, and it's changed my life
1: completely. Oh, I like that. I'll take take a look at that. I'm always. I'm all ears when it comes to to reading. Cool. In the books, I used to read a lot. Whenever someone would recommend something, I I would just go out and read it. Now I've become much more focused on reading things that inspire me towards my work. I'm reading an interesting book uh, now called Trying Not to Try. Have you heard of Wei?
0: Yeah, I feel like I have.
1: Yeah. It says this old... Confucius idea
0: oh yeah d- d- absolutely
1: and the book is really interesting so book I'm reading right now and anything involved you, you know woo-wee. finding new ways Wei.
0: it woo Wei with a w right
1: yeah yeah yes it's, I think it's too yeah right
0: there's something like why do I remember there was something about someone moving a ping pong ball with their mind using woo wei. uh it's, that, <laughs> that, that like sound be- like urban myth or something
1: that, that sounds no that sounds about right the the book t- there's a few examples in the book one is about a butcher um carving up an ox to highlight this type of not trying yeah uh, the hardest thing we do is try, is not trying right and, and uh it, it's an interesting sort of historical perspective of these ideas it's not really research based but it's uh it, it nonetheless it's pretty interesting mm-hmm. and, and then always you know, recommendations on different types of you know meditation practice. I, I do, you know, I'm not as consistent as I'd like to be uh, or as I want to be maybe mm-hmm. in finding different techniques or things that I enjoy to do. Yeah. That always helps for sure.
0: How, how long do you do? Do you do like 10, 15, 20 minutes in the morning?
1: Yeah. So I'm anywhere from five to 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. When I had my office I had a little bit more consistent routine of doing it in the middle of the day, shopping for another space right now. But yeah. for now, I just do it at home. And yeah, it's about five to 20 minutes.
0: Yeah, same here. I do 15 to 20 minutes.
1: And I find that that's, for me, is I, I get sort of the clarity I'm looking for and I can accomplish what I'm trying to do. But that's, yeah, as far as routines, and I just think I had more...
0: I'll put all this in the show notes, too. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. put links to all the books we talked about in the show, everyone. I'm going to put in the show notes with links so you can check them out.
1: I would recommend that um, the, the Rise of Superman book as well. Great, uh, I've heard you, great
0: things about it.
1: It is. It's fantastic. It, and it's really well written. Re- exci- it's like a great story. And there's some inspiring people that I didn't know much about these athletes like Laird Hamilton and Danny way the skateboarder. Yeah. Um,
0: and Laird is the surfer, right?
1: Yeah. He's the big wave. So just accomplished these amazing feats. And I, I looked them up on YouTube and, and to watch them after you read the stories is pretty interesting.
0: It's kind of inconceivable to see like when he drops into one of these giant waves, you're just like, it's unbelievable.
1: Yeah. With what's at stake. And it's yeah. really true. One slip. It's, it's done. It's over. Or the uh, skateboarder Danny used to skateboard, right? A little bit.
0: I did. Yeah. When I was a kid, I think I, I still got love some skateboarding. Yeah. So yeah, we, yeah. You know, all these thing. old
1: skateboarders, but now these guys who this guy, Danny way jumped over the, the great wall of China.
0: <laughs> oh, you're kidding me.
1: And, and with a broken leg and the story is just outrageous. And what, what drives these people is really is the stuff that I took away from that book.
0: Amazing. All right. So again, I'll put links to all these books, the movie, everything in the show notes so everyone can check it out. So Greg, this has been great. If people want to learn more about your work, if they want to work with you or they want to get in touch, can you just tell people how they can find you?
1: Sure. My website is mindfulmindset.com and there's a way through that to get me through email if interested. And I have a Twitter account that I'm it's half personal, half uh, work-related stuff, but it's, yep. uh, it's at GC3Greg. Those are probably the two of the better ways to, to get in touch.
0: Fantastic. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Morgan. I really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun.
0: Great. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Greg Carton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review and rating. I also wanted to let you know that today's show is sponsored by our free How to Meditate mini course. Sign up and learn how to meditate in five easy lessons. Just visit aboutmeditation.com and you can sign up right from our homepage. So, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to being with you on the next episode when we interview meditation teacher Peter. Bampton, I think you're going to love it. And as always, I'd like to end with a quote. Or in today's case, it's actually a short stanza from a T.S. Eliot poem called Four Quartets. Here we go. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance.